Welcome to the Great Trials Podcast, where you get a behind-the-scenes look at America's greatest trials with the trial lawyers who tried them. I did the fair market value of a healthy brain by comparing it to Freddie Freeman's salary, the Braves player, right? and Chris Tucker, who's a DeKalb County native actor, and kind of use those to say, like, this is what people in this area, in this community are doing with a healthy human brain. You know, for Mr. Laguerre's entire life, I mean, certainly his healthy brain is worth 10 million. Please rise, court is now in session. All right, welcome to the uh, Great Trials podcast. As always, this is Steve Lowry with Yvonne Godfrey. Yvonne, how are you doing this morning? I'm good. I mean, I'm good considering it's the day we're recording the day after July 4th. I know we never yeah. put these up live, but uh, but yes, yeah. this is the morning after July 4th. I hope you had a good uh, good 4th. It was pretty good. I went to, I think I talked about it on our last episode or a couple episodes ago about how much I love Ikea. Um, <laughs> and I went like twice in the last 24 hours. And I, I have to say, especially after putting together furniture for like 14 hours, I'm not sure if I love it as much as I thought I did. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, I'm just wondering how many parts you have sitting out that just didn't make it into the furniture. <laughs> definitely, there were a few things left over that were kind of mysterious. Um, <laughs> So I'm not sure, but it was good. How was yours? It was good. We had a nice uh, fourth and, and we uh, you know, go out to watch the fireworks in my neighborhood as we always do. And literally, as soon as the fireworks were over, it just started thunderstorming big time. And uh, so we, we got out of there quickly, but, uh, yeah. but we had a good time. Yeah, awesome. Um, all right. Well, this, uh, this morning, we have uh, two great guests and, uh, and I'm excited to talk about this case that they uh, just came off of, I think two weeks ago, maybe two to three weeks ago. Yeah. Uh, our guests this morning are Bethany Schneider from the Schneider Law Firm and Betty Davis from Betty da- or from the Davis Injury Firm. And uh, Bethany, Betty, how are you guys doing this morning? Hey, good. Thanks for having us. And, I'm pretty uh, good. <laughs> good, good. And Betty, I understand that, uh, that yesterday was a big birthday for you. Yeah, it was um, the big four zero. Big it's the new 30. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> big 30. I thought it was a big 20. <laughs> oh, you can hear it in my voice. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Well, Betty, happy birthday. And, uh, and, and thank you for uh, coming on uh, early morning for you, because I understand you're out on the West Coast too, right? Yep. Yep. Thank you for having us. Yeah. So, you, so this is a very early morning for Betty. Yeah, yeah. I, should, um, I, I should not be complaining. I'm <laughs> <laughs> right, right. <laughs> well, celebrating America. <laughs> of course, of course. <laughs> yeah. And it's nice to be, have your own uh, celebration at the same time as for our country. And I'm sure you had lots of uh, tanks and, uh, and airplanes, and all kinds of military stuff out there for you, right? <laughs> yeah. Of course. Um, I guess that maybe that's what our president was doing. He was celebrating you, Betty. Yeah, I believe it. I believe oh, it was a Betty celebration. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, let me tell our listeners a little bit about Bethany and Betty. Uh, Bethany uh, Schneider is a uh, lawyer in Atlanta. She, uh, like I said, she is uh, the principal lawyer at Schneider Law Firm or Schneider Law PC. And you can look up Bethany at SchneiderLawPC.com. And let me spell that just for anybody is S-C-H-N-E-I-D-E-R lawpc.com and bethany is uh been practicing uh, uh for a no- for about 10 years i think and uh for most of her career she was with uh with one of the big bad defense firms up in atlanta 
uh, who actually we have a lot of friends at, so I'm just giving them a hard time. But she was with King & Spalding, a very well-known defense firm, for a number of years and then started her plaintiff's law practice uh, last year and then decided to start her plaintiff's law practice with a bang with just getting a, a fantastic verdict a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, that um, really nicely. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and, and Betty Davis uh, uh, has a, uh, a personal injury firm up in Atlanta as well. And Betty's been practicing for a, a little bit longer than that. Um, but uh, we both two great uh, young lawyers up and coming, doing, doing really well. And, uh, and this case that we have to talk about is just a really, uh, really fascinating case. And, uh, and I'm excited to talk about uh, not just the liability side of this, but how uh, you were able to prove the damages in this case and, and get over what I would consider, and I think most lawyers would consider, a pretty big hurdle in the fact that you know, your client uh, hadn't sought treatment for quite some time, and that seemed to be a theme of the case. Yeah. Yeah, it, it's, it, and just, just as kind of a sneak preview, I mean, it really seemed to me, at least reading kind of some of the documents from your case, that this just seemed like a everything was a fight and yeah. considering that the two of you this was um one of your first trials certainly on the plaintiff side that i mean this is a as we'll talk about this is a pretty good outcome but this is also this was not like a liability admitted case this is not it just seems like everything about this was like a knockdown drag out fight <laughs> yes yeah <laughs> but we were glad they didn't admit a liability so yeah, I mean, it's one of those things that at the time that you're dealing with it is a pain in the ass, but, uh, but at the end of the day, you're happy about it because uh, it actually uh, helps you build your themes with the jury. Right. Well, let's talk about the case a little bit. So the case is uh, uh, called Max Laguerre versus Cajun Contractors, Inc. Um, I think before the case was actually tried, there were some other uh, defendants in, including uh, the Crown Plaza. And again, I always say this to everybody, Bethany and Betty, but if I screw up any details, you can feel free to correct me. Uh, but I think y'all reached a settlement with the, with the hotel defendants uh, beforehand and then ended up trying the case against uh, Cajun contractors. And, um, and, you know, Yvonne, I was thinking about this when, we were re when I was reading this case. This is the second uh, case where we've had uh, debris falling from a construction site onto somebody on the street. And, uh, and it just makes me think that, you know, next time I'm in Atlanta, New York, any big city, I just should be looking up the whole time. I know. It's crazy. Well, and as you know, a ceiling fan did recently yeah, fall. Exactly. So, exactly. Yeah, all not, these things. I'm not even sure if it helps to be aware or not, but it's definitely, this is scary. I mean, we'll talk about it, but this is yeah. something you do not think about that could happen to you. So, uh, so Mr. Laguerre uh, was a taxi cab driver in Atlanta, um, and, I, and I'm going to turn this around a little bit, Bethany, from the way you did your opening, because we've talked a lot about the principles of primacy and recency and how you should uh, frame your case for the jury, um, and so you did uh, a, you know, a fantastic job of talking about this from the standpoint of what the contractors didn't do. Um, but I'm going to talk about it from Mr. Laguerre's point of view, because Mr. Laguerre is a taxi cab driver. Uh, he, he had just uh, sent his family off to Disney World. They were going to go have a good time. He's, you know, working because he wants to make a little bit of extra money and, and support his family. And he's standing on the street talking to a friend waiting for his next fare. And, uh, and literally, as he's standing outside the Crown Plaza in downtown Atlanta, uh, he hears a noise, looks up, and an eight foot, uh, 25 pound piece of pipe falls out of the sky 
and hits him uh, right in the face and uh, and breaks his nose. Uh, there's blood everywhere. Uh, people from around the area literally think that this this piece of debris or something just fell straight out of the sky. And uh, and what had happened was is that there was uh, some construction work being done on the the Crown Plaza. Uh, they were renovating the pool on the fourth floor, and they were uh, tearing out. I think it was some fencing and some cabanas on the fourth floor. And and while they were doing the um, the the work on that uh, caused a pipe to just fall off the the um, that uh, building and it fell down and and hit uh, Mr. Laguerre and and as you were able to to show so effectively, um, you know they basically didn't do anything that they were supposed to do as far as uh, guarding warning. Um, I mean, didn't put up any signs, didn't uh, put up any fencing, any netting, anything that they they should have done to keep debris from falling on the street, which you think would be just common sense. Um, and uh, and they didn't do any of that, and that's why Mr. Laguerre uh, suffered this uh, this injury. Uh, and then um, when it came time for trial, and we'll talk about this, basically just said. Uh, it wasn't their problem um, and it wasn't their responsibility. But, um, and then, and then the other part of this case is uh, that uh, you all did a fantastic job of showing um, the brain injury that Mr. Laguerre suffered in this. And as I said, briefly went for a significant amount of time over three years uh, without getting really any medical treatment. Um, and so that was certainly a big hurdle for you guys uh, to face uh, and then bring home a verdict. Uh, and I should have mentioned the, the amount of the verdict at the beginning, but it was a $5 million compensatory verdict and a $500,336 punitive damages verdict. So for a total of $5,500,336. Uh, and just a, uh, just a, uh, uh, great work guys. We, we were able to read the, uh, opening and the closing and the, uh, the pretrial statement and, and just, uh, just really good work. Thank you. Um, you. Talk about uh, how you approach this case, because I I think, you know, in just reading how it was presented to the to the jury, one of the big hurdles, uh, you know, despite the fact that they didn't admit liability right off the bat, which you would think maybe they should have done. I I definitely think they should have. But, uh, you know, how did you approach this case to build damages knowing that you had uh, I think, you know, the, the theme became during trial that he had gone three years, three months and six days uh, without getting medical treatment. And how did you how did you approach that? I mean, I think that the breakthrough moment for us on the damages issue dealing with the gap was actually and I'll let Betty talk about it was kind of her putting together her own, um, you know, personal experiences with also thinking about, you know, NFL concussions and that sort of thing. And the Friday before we went to trial, we were going to meet with one of our experts and, you know, Betty kind of brought up, you know, I, you know, just her own personal experiences and the NFL thing and um, really closing the gap with, with that. So I'll let her talk more about that. But I thought that was pretty much the breakthrough moment in trying to figure out how to deal with the gap. Yeah, so thank you for putting me on the spot with this voice issue, Bethany. <laughs> and, <laughs> but, and uh, Betty, I got to say, so, you sound great, so don't worry about it. You do. You oh, do. thank you. Thank you. <laughs> my voice actually sounds more mature now that I'm in my 40s. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, you know, 
Bethany and I knew that the gap was a huge issue from the start. And let me just say that, you know, this case is a case that I signed up right when I started my Plano's practice. And as I was looking for, you know, a trial, a more experienced trial lawyer to kind of help me come in and try this case early on in the litigation, nobody wanted to touch it because of the three-year gap. Hmm. Um, So I give Bethany all of the credit for and just having the balls to say, let's, yeah, let's, let's, work, this, let's work this case yeah. up. <laughs> just a, knowing that you had I an all-female trial team, I, I love the yeah, exactly. of having the balls. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, she did. Um, Absolutely. <laughs> I mean, she was the one, Bethany was the one who really encouraged me to you know, just send our client to a neurologist and get that PBI worked up because initially um, – I thought it was just a broken nose because I had no idea that he had all these symptoms of a traumatic brain injury. Um, and Bethany took it with stride and said, well, no, we have nothing to lose. Let's see, you know, the neurologist will treat Mr. Laguerre and diagnose him with what we think is a brain injury based on the symptoms he was having, which were headaches, very, very bad headaches where he'd have to sleep them off for three hours at a time before they went away, which is just not normal. And even though there was that gap, we knew he got hit in the head with a metal pipe. And we knew what the truth was, but, you know, with the way cases are presented to juries and defended, we knew that that was going to be an issue. But aside from that, um, you know, I got to thinking about the gap, and I I have a mother-in-law who has mild cognitive impairment. We think it's Alzheimer's um, in the early stages. You know, I was looking back three years ago when my son was born, my mother-in-law was normal-ish, and she would do really strange things every once in a while that we couldn't explain. So, for example, when my son was born, I remember her wrapping him up in this very thick, warm blanket and holding him for three hours, and he came out sweating, and I was you know, freaking out as a new mom, and I just thought that that, that was the strangest thing. And you know, the next thing she did was got really incoherent at a Christmas dinner. And I thought, okay, she's just drunk. And it wasn't until probably about two or three years later that she showed up at my sister-in-law's house at one in the morning, thinking it was one in the afternoon. And it kind of clicked with me. I said, oh, well, that's what happened to Max's family. You know, first it was headaches. Then it was these mood swings. He'd be irritable, get mad at one of his children's birthday parties, um, yell, in a fight, you know, there was a really moving story of where he and his son got into a fight and, you know, the son, Max Hardy, not Max Jr., but Max Hardy said, you know, my father and I got in this argument and it was the first time he'd ever thrown something during an argument and raised his voice. Like he threw a shoe at the wall or something like that. And so Bethany and I, you know, knew from focus grouping this case and just knew that we were going to get this big timeline with a bunch of gaps. And I, I thought, you know, it really does take time for a family to figure out mental changes, you know, emotional changes. Those are really subtle changes. So why don't we extract from our family members and damages witnesses the date on which they remembered Max acting strange or like doing something out of the ordinary. And so we used the defense's own timeline as our damages witnesses were testifying, we would click off on the timeline 
Um, and by the end of trial, we had filled in the gaps with the stories from the families. Wow. Yvonne, what does every successful law firm need? Really great lawyers like me. Re that is exactly right. Really great lawyers like Yvonne. Uh, they also need cases, right? Right. And uh, what's the way we get cases? I think I know where you're going with this and I'm going to say our website. <laughs> our website is a big one and the best website firm out there is Digital Law Marketing. Yvonne, tell our listeners what Digital Law Marketing does. Well, they can help you with things like search engine optimization, pay-per-click marketing, social media marketing, content marketing strategies, web design and development, reputation management, which sounds very mysterious. I, I definitely need some reputation management. <laughs> I, I, I'd like to find out exactly what that does. We need to look into that one a bit more. <laughs> Uh, and they also do local search, and I'm sure if you call Mike and Stephanie over at Digital All Marketing, they will tell you what local search means, and they'll tell you what all of these things do, and how it can help build your law firm and get you cases. Call Mike and Stephanie or look them up at their website, digitallawmarketing.com. Again, that's digitallawmarketing.com. Yeah, we had this, basically on our timeline, we had this... Um kind of triangle right like kind of go starting out small and then going bigger showing you know them more and more realizing all the symptoms but that was like all along the way um to yeah. be to close the gap and um and you know i think that the analogy was really powerful um in the closing that betty had come up with on like the whole nfl concussion so you know people would actually have gotten to the point where they commit suicide before their family members really put all the pieces together. Um, you know, and I think that that was a very uh, impactful, um, you know, analogy. And we also turned around the gap. So on our timeline that we had on the gap, instead of it being a three year, three month, six day medical treatment gap, we turned it to a three year, 10 month, you know, uh, 31 day denial of responsibility or admitting of responsibility gap. Um, and you know, I, so the 336 in the punitive verdict was actually, we were told by the jurors afterwards was for the three year, three month, six day gap. Wow. And yeah, I mean, yeah. so that's, we took, I mean, I think we took the most pride in that because we turned around what everybody else thought was our biggest weakness. Even some of the lawyers listening to the closings, Oh, that's, you know, that's real tough, real tough. And we ended up making the jury so mad about it that they wanted to punish the defense for that. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, go ahead, go Steve. Ahead, oh, sorry. I was just going to say, I mean, that's one of the things with, with, with brain injury cases and, you know, and anybody who's handled brain injury cases struggles with it. And, and, and I've had this discussion with my staff, uh, you know, here, with, you know, when you've got somebody who, and I'm, I'm only using this term because it's a medical term the mild traumatic brain injury because it's not mild to the person who suffers it, but it's just the way that the medical community describes it. Um, but it, you know, that they can be the most difficult clients to deal with because, um, you know, they won't remember the discussions you've had with them and, the, and they'll get, they'll get irritated with you. They'll get irritated with their, with your staff. And so it does take a lot of patience to deal with somebody like that. And, um, and it, it's one of the things, and I think the way you guys did it, um, you know, when you take somebody, when you're looking at them, and even if you have five minutes worth of conversation with them, they, they might come off sounding completely normal. 
Um, and it really takes uh, time to see that, that um, they're suffering from something more than that um, when they're, when they're going through that. And, and I uh, just wanted to point this out. And I told Bethany that I was going to steal this from her, uh, in, in the next brain injury case that I tried, but she used this analogy of the bruised apple, which I think is just perfect. You know, you look at this apple and you can't tell whether or not it's bruised. It looks like a perfectly normal apple. And then you get more information and real, realize that, uh, that something's wrong there. Um, and so, and, and, you know, and, and I think, you know, this three year, three month and, and six day gap in treatment, you know, from his standpoint, from, from your client's standpoint, um, you know, he, he, he's either in, he might be in denial or he may not, not even realize that he's suffering these things. And it really takes other people to point out the, the fact that, you know, he's changed, that, that something's uh, different about him. Um, and, and, um, you know, so I, I, I just really uh, thought the way you guys uh, painted this picture and, um, and told the jury about how this affected him. And, 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 you know, one of the things I didn't mention, um, is that your client was Haitian and, um, and that, you know, one of the uh, parts of their culture is that they're, they're the, uh, they, you know, take care of their family. They don't want to show weakness. They don't want to, you know, say that they can't work. And so he did everything he could to keep working, uh, even though, you know, he didn't do it as effectively as he could and even had to stop driving his taxi. But, uh, but again, I mean, just the, just you know, this is one of the things that I think everybody who who represents brain injury cases really, really struggles with. Yeah, and I mean, we had a big struggle too with I think what uh, I mean. We heard different uh, points of view on this as we were preparing was whether or not we should have him be in the courtroom the whole time um, because you know we'd heard you know I think on your podcast um, uh, you know you had somebody talking about the California chicken. One where he said he did not have his client sit in there the whole time. Um, and, you know, we heard some other people say that as well. Um, but what I think ended up being helpful for us was we ended up making the decision to have him be there the whole time. So then the jury could see real time his reactions to his family, number one, testifying. Yeah. About it. I mean, he just was, I mean, heartbroken, like just looking down. So if you could feel the shame and the guilt that he was feeling. And then also um, he saw then his, I mean, which, I mean, you know, you have to take into account like their, their wellness and well-being, you know, and mental stability when you're doing this. And this was one of the things that we, Betty and I spent a lot of time talking about and considering, but he heard the entire doctor deposition and, and the neuroradiologist testimony where, I mean, he sat there, the, I think one of the most, the most poignant, you know, point in his, um, direct was he just sat there, you know, shaking his head saying, I didn't know, I didn't know. And he really, the jury was able to see that he was learning all of these things about the full extent of his injury along with them. And I think it ended up, you know, actually being very impactful on them. Even if, you know, day to day, he looked like he was sitting there fine. I think it ended up, playing well for us that he, you know, they, they were seeing him experience it all along with them. Right. Right. Well, and I think we've all got, I mean, I, I know I certainly have um, those members in my family who, you know, maybe they notice something's off with their health or whatever, but I mean, I think we all either have friends or family members who are like this, who just, they don't want to go to the doctor. They kind of don't really want to know or acknowledge that there might be a problem or, um, 
you know, denial, like we kind of talked about, in addition to the fact that depending on the symptoms, they could be just totally unaware of the impairment. So I think a lot of people can relate to that, but you all did a really good job, I think, between using family testimony, medical testimony, and these analogies that you made to show people how this would happen. And it sounds like your, your, your treating neurologist, I, I guess your treating neurologist was really good on, um, on this not being unusual, this, this, this gap in this, both this gap in treatment or recognizing the symptoms, but I guess also that um, from a damages or a causation perspective, that there's not a lot that can be done um, during that gap anyway. Exactly. I thought that was really important that I wanted to make sure to highlight for the jury that he did not do any additional harm to himself. You couldn't put any blame on him for making his condition worse by not getting that treatment. Um, and so she did come out and say, no, unfortunately, that's the sad thing is that even if he'd gotten treated during that time, it wouldn't have changed the outcome. He just suffered more during that because he didn't seek medical treatment. So I did think that was very important to get you know, out from the beginning, like he wasn't, you know, cause he didn't cause this because of that gap, which I think in other kinds of cases, you know, sometimes you do have that where that may be part of the proximate causation. Um, right, so. right. Um, well, just while we're talking about his symptoms, um, can you talk a little bit about, sounds like one of the defense strategies was to blame hypertension. Hmm. <laughs> was that really, was that it? Just basically gap in treatment and hypertension? Hypertension, yeah. I mean, there is, he had some hypertension that was noted in some of his records. And um, luckily, what we did was we consulted with a neuroradiologist who ordered an MRI, a DTI scan, and a DTI with neuroquant. And the MRI showed the changes that are consistent with hypertension. Whereas the DTI showed changes that were consistent with a traumatic brain injury. So both the neuroradiologist and the neurologist were able to distinguish the, the difference in the, the changes um, between the MRI and the DTI um, and testify that there's no way that the DTI um, would show any sort of that level of hypertension that he had. Yeah, let's talk about that a little bit because uh, you know this is something that I think is is newer in um, in in brain injury cases is using the uh, diffuser tensor tensor imaging uh, DTI, and I know there's a lot of controversy about this. And um, you know, one thing I was wondering in your case, did did the defense make a motion to keep that out of evidence? No. Okay. Um, we'll talk a little bit about that. I mean, because I've seen DTI before and, um, you know, it really, I've never used it in a case yet and I've, I'm excited to use it in my next one, but, um, you know, it really does give you just a, a, a in-depth scan of the brain where you can really see, you know, the changes in the brain at, at down at a microscopic level. But, um, talk a little bit about the, the DTI and, uh, and what that shows and what that helps you show the jury. So the DTI, I mean, I still don't really understand the science behind it, honestly, um, but I think it measures the volume of brain cells in the brain. I mean, that's like the dumbed down version of it. Um, the way that the neuroradiologist explained it was really difficult to understand. I'm not sure that the jury really understood it either, but I think <laughs> the bottom line is it is a scan that, um, you know, gets down into the microscopic level of the brain and shows loss of volume or loss of function in the brain. And so when you have a brain injury, 
um, the axons that transmit information from one cell to another get damaged, they get sheared, and the DTI scan gets down to that level to see, I mean, it doesn't show the actual shearing, but I guess the volume is shown if there's some loss or there's something that's not working, the DTI can pick it up. And it actually only picks up the changes in the brain um, where those, that type of damage occurs in about 5% of cases. So we really lucked out that there was a change in this case. It, I liked how um, Dr. Ashley, the treating neurologist, described them as scars. So basically there were like areas that were dimmer on the DTI than other areas. And so I, we used that kind of term to try to make it a little easier. You know, Betty had the difficult job of presenting the neuroradiologist and right. spent a lot of time <laughs> studying, you know, what are DTIs and everything. Um, and so, but then I really liked how Dr. Ashley, you know, described it as it just shows the scars of these dead um, or damaged brain cells because I, mean, I didn't know this, but brain cells cannot regenerate. Right. So, yeah. um, so that's why basically she described it as the healthy cells coming around the dead or damaged ones. So you get in these areas of brightness with like dimmer spots. Um, so I thought that the scar was a good, you know, visual for the jury. Yeah, you know, one of the things in, uh, you know, the describing a brain injury and how it actually happens, you know, can be difficult just because it is, it is complex. It's a complex organ. Um, but, um, you know, I, describing it, I thought you all, again, did just a really good job of laying it out. You know, that you have these neurons and axons that are essentially your uh, communication lines within the brain and um, and that when you have an injury a shearing type injury or something you know hits you in the head from 60 feet in the air um, it those things those actually get torn and uh, and it separates that connection and um, and you don't always pick that up um, and it, it doesn't uh, it doesn't heal it, they, they don't come back once those are once those are gone they're gone and um, you know uh, I, I really you know, like uh, how DTI is able to show some of that. Um, I, I don't, and, and Betty, if you can talk about this. So when you say DTI and then DTI with neuroquant, what, uh, what is that showing, uh, showing the jury when they see with the neuroquant? So the DTI is per machine. I guess the DTI is standardized per machine. Okay. So until you have, you know, X number of scans done, you can't really standardize um, somebody's scan compared to another. So this particular machine had to have several hundred scans before they could basically put on a bell curve um, Mr. Laguerre's results compared to other people. And our neuroradiologist, Dr. Owens, testified that uh, Mr. Laguerre's results were like way off the bell curve, like towards the, uh, the bad end. And it's one of the worst he's ever seen. Wow. And so that for the DTI is particular to that machine and the neuroradiologist reads that scan himself and then puts the results on this bell curve in comparison to other folks of the same age, sex, and whatever demographics that they use to compare. The DTI with the neuroquant is more as a computerized comparison where uh, some folks who, you know, started it um, put, compiled a bunch of data with you know, different people um, and that computerized um, 
I don't know what it is, it's a program of some sort, will take that scan and compare it to their database of other people. Um, okay. So it's still the same scan, but one is the neuroradiologist reading it versus the other is the computer that's reading it and then comparing several different areas of the brain um, with other people in the same database. And so those areas of the brain, uh, Bethany, I think you're more familiar with which parts of the brain that the DTI with NeuroQuant was picking up. Because Bethany was able to um, compare, you know, the different changes in Mr. Laguerre's brain to the different regions of the brain um, that he was in, that impacted him. Um, and then explain, you know, this affects mood and irritability. This affects memory. This affects hearing or whatever it was. Um, she was able to do that effectively in closing by taking that, those neuroquant results and just using a map of the brain to compare the two side by side. Yeah, I think that was pretty powerful because the neuroquant specifically listed out which lobes and so we had the frontal lobe, the temporal lobe, and the parietal lobe. And so we had this great demonstrative that lists all the lobes in different colors and all of the functions for each lobe. And we'd had the doctor, um, the treating neurologist, go through all this during her um, examination. But then in closing, you know, I, I went through and showed, you know, here's what, you know, Dr. Um, Owen said in this lobe, and then here's, you know, the symptoms basically, or the things that this controls and you, and it matched up pretty perfectly. And so I think they were able to see, okay, well, you know, here's the objective proof and then you're matching that up with the symptoms. And so, you know, it, I think it, it was pretty impactful for the jury in, in that. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, so, um, you know, and I, I was reading in some of the defense, uh, you know, the thing, they would point out the normal things I think that most defense lawyers would point out. But when, you know, after this happened and the EMTs came out and to take care of Mr. Laguerre, um, you know, his Glasgow coma score came back normal, which is not all that surprising because basically, uh, and you guys can talk about this uh, better than I can, but essentially that's just going to tell you whether or not somebody's conscious or not. And if he's conscious, you're going to come back with the, pretty close to normal Glasgow coma score. And then I think they took a CT scan at the hospital and that came back uh, normal as well. Um, and then they, um, it, you know, pointed out that uh, obviously this, uh, this gap in treatment, but, um, but, but talk about that. How did your, how did your um, experts or how did you deal with the fact that you had some of these initial readings come back as fairly, uh, as fairly normal readings? Yeah, I mean, it was important for us to address those kinds of things head on because we obviously knew that that was going to be the biggest issue. He was normal at the time. So, you know, when we first talked to Dr. Ashley after her initial treatment of him, you know, we expressed those concerns and, you know, she was very good in explaining how that doesn't really mean anything. And I have um, a couple other brain injury cases as well where I knew kind of you know, I knew all the science and I knew what she would say about all those initial findings. So we just, you know, started head on. I mean, I'm pretty sure we covered it some in voir dire. Um, and then, you know, in the opening, we used the whole Keith Mitnick, you know, put it in context. Right. Um, and, you know, set. And then also, I think the David Ball damages of in order to bring the case, we wanted to make sure to investigate, you know, all the possibilities of, you know, how it was caused and whether or not we were right. 
Um, and so we address those, you know, start off, you know, first thing in the opening. So we didn't get, you know, we want to make sure to preempt those, those weaknesses and show that they did not rule it out. Obviously covered it again with the um, treating neurologist, Betty covered it some with the, neuro the neuroradiologist, and then we, you know, hit it hard again in the closing. Yeah, I thought it was a really good job of, uh, you know, uh, you know, we say this every time on the podcast and when we talk about, you know, how you try cases that, you know, just hitting your weaknesses head on and, and, um, and you guys not only hit them head on, but I think turned them around and made them into strengths in your cases, uh, you know, basically describing, you know, what a brain injury is like and how long it can take to really manifest itself. Uh, but yeah, you, uh, it was, it was clear from your opening, uh, Bethany, that you weren't uh, shying away from what the defense was saying. You weren't running from it. You were saying, yes, this is what the evidence shows. And here's why, you know, it doesn't matter. Yeah. Betty, what was that list that you had called? Like the defense's favorite facts? Yes. The favorite facts was, you know, during the whole period that Bethany and I were preparing for trial, I was reading Keith Mitnick's book and she was reading David Ball. So <laughs> right. I had a list of the defense's favorite facts. Um, and that was one of them. And, you know, speaking of Wadir, Bethany did a, a really good job of addressing the gap in Wadir. And, um, you know, that was out there from the very, very beginning. Yeah. That three-year gap was, you know, they knew about it since, you know, the first, probably the first time she opened her mouth, they, they knew about the three-year gap. So, <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> um, you know, it, it, it was a running theme from, you know, the very, very beginning. So it really, really um, diffused the defense's you know, the three-year thing that they kept talking about. And one thing that we came up with, you know, as we were sitting there going over her defense's favorite facts to make sure we had all of that in voir dire that I thought worked really well. Um, you know, I obviously, this is only my second trial as a plaintiff's lawyer, and I've actually never done voir dire in any of the trials that I did on the defense side. So it was playing, but I'd seen a lot, but it was playing around. So we were trying to come up with, you know, how do we test these, you know, different weaknesses. But I thought work, what worked really well, um, which I will always incorporate, is we, we did cause questions first on those weaknesses. Right. And once we were done getting the cause, we came back with a commitment. So like, you know, okay, so everybody else is willing to listen with an open mind to the evidence about the gap. Okay, is there anyone not willing to listen, you know, to the evidence about the open, with an open mind about the gap? And so then we were able to remind them, you know, in closing, in Wadir, you committed, you know, to listening to the, these things with an open mind, you, you know, committed to following the law. And so I think that worked. We did that for um, uh, a couple different things that we felt like were some of the weaknesses. We didn't asked for medical expenses. And so we handled that in Wadir as well. Um, but I thought that cause then following up with the commitment worked, you know, really well in Wadir. Speaking of, um, speaking of uh, Vardyar, it sounds like y'all had a really good, um, it's always great when you can do this, but it sounds like you had somebody on the panel who had a TBI who said in front of everyone, I think I'll never be the same again. Or yes. <laughs> yes. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Anyway, I, you did a great job of working that into your opening. I noticed that right <laughs> away. You're like, yeah, just like juror number nine said, uh, you know, she's never going to get over it. <laughs> yeah, so <laughs> that was uh, that was really good. Yeah. So yeah, I I did want to talk about the the uh, decision to not use medical bills. Um, I I don't know what the medical bills were in this case, but uh, but talk about your decision not to use that. And and you know, we've talked about this before that you don't want to you know um, artificially anchor the jury to a lower number. Um, which sometimes you can do that if you put medical bills in and they're not 
you know, what someone might expect. So what, tell us about that decision. Um, well, you know, I'll let Betty talk about it a little bit too, but you know, that was something that we were actually deciding up until probably the trial started <laughs> yeah. because we had it yeah. in the, in the pretrial order and we tested it in our, uh, jury focus group, our mock trial that we did about whether or not they would bring that up. And Betty played a very tough defense lawyer and we had another lawyer as well. And they really hit hard on that, which actually they didn't even really do in our trial. Um, but you know, it was 40,000 in medical expenses. So, you know, I think we just, I don't know, Betty, maybe you can add some more intelligent thought to it, but we just, <laughs> I think decided yeah, I mean, why, why do it? Yeah. I mean, we, we really went back and forth a lot over it. Actually, we, up in, I think, yeah, we decided at the moment of trial, maybe in voir dire. Yeah, like when it came out of my not, mouth, basically, in voir dire. <laughs> uh, pretty much. I mean, because we were back and forth I mean, for that very reason that Steve mentioned. And we didn't want to anchor the value of the case to that $40,000 mark. And so we just, we just tried it out, really. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, obviously... No, it's, it's the right decision. And I, I mean, it was, a, it's a great decision. Sometimes, it, you know, as you say, uh, it can take uh, guts or balls uh, to, to do that sometimes. <laughs> well, that was obviously the, uh, the right decision. Well, and I think that and if you're going to do it, you need to handle it in Wadir. And we spent, yeah. you know, we were preparing for it on that, you know, before trial. And we spent a number, you know, a little bit of time trying to come up craft questions, specifically getting at this, like, you know, do you need medical expenses to figure out the severity of an injury, you know, do you, you know, th those kinds of questions. And we actually did get some cause on those questions. And then we were able to come back with the commitment that you weren't going to let that play in, you know, to your decision. And it, even though the defense lawyer said intentionally in his closing, you've only heard evidence of minor medical bills, which they heard no evidence of. Right. And it was kind of his way to try to get that in. They, when we talked to the jurors, they said that it never came up in, in deliberations. So I think, yeah. you know, we were able to now, yeah. you know, it might work differently with other defense lawyers. We didn't just because we didn't file any kind of motion in limiting or anything about the medical expenses. So we just told the jury, you know, in voir dire that it wasn't going to be an issue. So, I mean, they certainly probably could have gotten the medical expenses in if they had wanted to. Um, there was no order against it or anything. I mean, yeah, I was actually wondering that if there was an attempt by them to put that into evidence. Uh, but it sounds like they didn't other than just slipping it in there in the close. Right, right. Right. Yeah. We didn't know what and they speaking of what Speaking of what, dear, I just recall now that um, during that portion when we were trying to get out the medical bills issue, a lot of people were like, no, we need the medical bills. But then it, it became more clear as it went on that they were fine with just having the medical records evidencing the injury right. itself without the medical bills. So at first we thought, I kind of thought, oh my gosh, it's going to backfire. These people want the medical bills. But then, you know, as the conversation went on, they were comfortable with just the medical records. So by the time Vladir was over, then it was a non-issue. Right. Got it. Got it. So another question I had about this, you know, and there's a lot of discussion, uh, you know, uh, amongst lawyers who do uh, brain injury cases about whether or not to use a neuropsychologist, uh, which 
uh, for our listeners who don't know, a neuropsychologist is a PhD, not a, not a medical doctor. And essentially, they would put a, a person through a battery of tests uh, to try and determine whether or not there's some uh, cognitive uh, dysfunction. And then, you know, they even put them through some tests to, to determine whether or not um, they may be uh, exaggerating, faking, or lying. Um, and there's there's question about whether or not to use a neuropsychologist. Was there ever any consideration by you guys to use a neuropsychologist? Uh, and if so, what was the uh, tell, tell us about that a little bit? We thought um, about it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to give too much away, but um, right. we thought about it, and uh, we decided that ultimately having the treating neurologist give us causation was better than using a neuropsychologist and that prior to trying this case we went to a TBI conference and um, there were some thoughts out there that using a neuropsychologist in your case in chief isn't really the way to go that it's better to use a neuropsychologist and rebuttal um, if the defense identifies an expert neuropsychologist Right. So yeah. we just decided that our neurologist was strong enough. She was, she was really, really good. Um, she did a great job with the jury explaining these TBI cases in a very just a, you know, basic level um, that was sufficient for our case. This episode of The Great Trials Podcast is brought to you by Legal Technology Services, or LTS. Yvonne, have you ever been in the courtroom and right when you're about to make the big point to the judge or to the jury, play a video, bring up a document, and your technology has frozen or not worked? No joke, Steve. That has never happened to me because I use LTS. Yes, and LTS, Legal Technology Services, are experts at legal courtroom technology, whether you're talking about demonstrative exhibits, playing videos, doing day-in-the-life videos, or doing settlement videos, or just presenting your evidence to the jury. These are the experts. They can also help you out as far as scheduling depositions nationwide. They can take care of it, arrange for the court reporter, the videographer, arrange the location. They get what a trial involves, they get what a deposition involves, and you can use them to make your life a lot easier. They have also been voted four times as either the best of trial services or best hot seat technician by the Daily Report. So you should definitely call them up. And when you do, mention the Great Trials Podcast. And that's Legal Technology Services. You can talk to Bob, Melanie, or anyone else on their team. They are fantastic people and fantastic at their jobs. Legal Technology Services at LTSAtlanta.com. That's LTSAtlanta.com. Um, and, and did the defense ever try to uh, move for a, you know, an independent medical exam, or as I like to call them, a defense medical exam? Did they ever try to get somebody on their side to, to do an exam of your client? No. Okay. No. They didn't even name an expert or depose our people. So really, they didn't depose your your uh, your people. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, and I did read there. I did read there what they said in their pre-trial, and it did sound like they were selling out on this defense of uh, you know, hey, it's just not our problem, uh, not our responsibility. So was that the sort of big part of their defense? Yep. Yeah. yeah. I mean, they spent most of the discovery period just arguing between themselves who should pay for the defense. They, you know, I think they saw this as just, they were both so wrapped up in who it was going to be at fault 
and just thinking, oh, this is just a headaches case, even though we gave them all of the records back in the fall, as soon as we, you know, we knew um, with, about the brain injury and they just were so wrapped up in pointing fingers at each other that they didn't have time to work the case up for themselves. It seems. Yeah. I mean, let's talk about the fact we've spent, we've spent, we've done kind of different from what we usually right. do. We spent a lot of time <laughs> on damages um, and we kind of skipped over the liability, which I want to, I definitely want to make sure we talk about. And I also want to make sure that I lead with, I, an eight foot long metal pipe weighs 25 pounds, fell about 60 feet. I, I'm, I'm, I can't believe this guy even survived. Right. I know. I mean, that is terrifying. Now, Betty will say it probably wasn't 20 feet or 25 pounds. <laughs> that was what yeah. I don't think it was. I mean, uh. well, you, yeah, it sounded like Bethany, uh, from the, um, from your clothes that you actually had the pipe there and, and were able to uh, uh, give it to the jury and let them hold it. Was that? Yeah, we had, yeah. we had a model pipe basically because okay. we didn't have the actual pipe. It, yeah. was, it was, I believe to be an electrical conduit pipe. We had a picture of it. So we just went to Home Depot and bought, you know, I guess we could have gone and bought the eight foot long one, but that would have been a little unwieldy, you know, unwieldy uh, yeah. to try to get in the courtroom. I mean, you should have seen me and Betty like coming in the courtroom. We had to get, <laughs> this like pipe and everything we're like what in the world um but uh but then betty yeah betty passed <laughs> around during her uh, the first witness and that was great yeah yeah no i mean there's nothing better than letting the jury uh handle it i i, I had a case this is a number of years ago where a, a thing called a chain wheel actually fell about 30 feet and hit my client right on the head and actually left this indentation right in the top of his head uh, that was still there years later. And so when we, we did not try that case, we ended up getting it resolved. But when we met with the defense in order to, you know, see if we could get the case resolved, I bought one of these chain wheels. And, uh, and so I, you know, picked it up in, the, in my presentation and I, I said, this is what fell and, you know, hit my client in the head. And I went over and I handed it to the insurance adjuster who was this little, I mean, I think she was probably close to 60, probably weighed about a hundred pounds. And, uh, and I just gave it to her and she could barely hold the thing. And it was, you know, we got, we got the case resolved that day. Yeah. Um, I mean, Betty did say with such confidence, your honor, can I pass it around the, uh, to the jury? Right. <laughs> like, Oh, of course, you know, and, then you're <laughs> it around and like look at each other. Oh, heavy, you know, heavy. <laughs> and we're like, this is perfect. What it did, yeah. Probably the, the the having half the length too probably worked in your favor oh, yeah. because people are like imagining what twice exactly the that's what we thought. Yeah, yeah, we were like imagine twice this size. You know? <laughs> <laughs> oh, and, and you know, and when it's falling from sixty feet, it doesn't have to be that heavy to do some major damage. Exactly. Right. Um, if anybody's taken a physics class, <laughs> right, right. Betty right. was trying to figure out how she could get up there and testify about the the force of the knife. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I was like, I'm going to use this velocity calculator that I found on the internet. <laughs> well, I think we all heard like that story in school at some point about like, you know, dropping a penny off the Empire State Building and killing somebody or something. So like, I feel yeah. like there's enough background knowledge about that. Yeah, yeah absolutely. They all cringe. I mean, this was just, you know, you couldn't get a better case as a plaintiff's lawyer, really. I mean... We were so excited when we got to like try this case because we're like, I mean, a pipe fell out of the sky and hit this guy in the head. Like, <laughs> right. you can't get any more of an innocent bystander, you know, and just the shock of people hearing it. 
to know that like this person was hurt. So it was, I mean, it'll be hard to top like how fun this case was in just the, the fact, yeah. you know? Well, it okay. sounds like he was lucky I mean, to have pretty- y'all. <clears throat> oh yeah. <laughs> well, we were lucky to have him too. He's such a great guy and a great family. So we're really grateful that we were able to help somebody you know, who is deserving. Yeah. And, you know, and that's one of the things that when you're a defense lawyer and Bethany, I know you spent some time on the defense, so you can uh, talk about this. But when you've got a, a client or a, a plaintiff in this case who, uh, you know, is very sympathetic, um, you know, did absolutely nothing wrong, is literally standing there on the street. So you can't the defense doesn't have the ability to say this is his fault or in any, you know, any way his fault. Uh, and then he's just got a great family. But then basically the the you know, part of your defense in this case is to say, yeah, this guy's a liar and he's, you know, lying about how badly he's injured. And, you know, this three years, three months, six days yeah. uh, that he went without anything. I mean, that's, it's a double edged sword for the defense and, uh, and, and it can backfire many times. Like it, uh, it seems to have in, uh, in this case. Well, I think that Tony Jones, the defense lawyer really did do, you know, the best job that he could do in, implying with the gap that there was some lies or changes in testimony that there were lies. I mean, he never came out like super aggressively saying he's a liar. And I think that was very smart of him. Like he did the whole like poke holes, try to discredit him. You know, he did a really good job at that. Um, You know, we tried to obviously on our side, make it seem a lot like he was much more aggressive than he actually was. But um, you know, I think that if he had, actually made his cross-examination more punchy and like yeah. hit, 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 you know, the points. Yeah. It could have been pretty devastating for us. Um, he made some good points, but I think he just got lost in the kind of just over and over reiterating the same points. And then it made it seem, you know, just the jury actually said to him, like, I think he said something like, you know, I, I thought, um, I thought he deserved some money, you know, I mean, he's a nice guy or something like that afterwards. And right. just, like, yeah, we could tell. Uh, <laughs> right, right. <laughs> wow. I, I, mean, I, I do it. I do have to point out, Bethany, one thing I really like that you did and, uh, and, uh, you know, it's uh, hard to do, uh, sometimes when you're in trial, but you, uh, um, in the close, you said, uh, you said something to the effect of, I was the defense lawyer one time. I know the game. You go out and you hire a smooth-talking, charming lawyer like this guy over here. And, uh, you know, compliment at the same time and just show him that. Uh, uh, yeah, Betty yeah. and I were trying to figure yeah. out the best way to describe him. Like, okay, smooth-talking. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, because it, it was pretty clear that several of the female jurors on the, yeah. know, they, they they liked him. Right, right, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, he's a good lawyer. And, you know, I mean, yeah. um, he, you know, he did, I mean, this is just basically, I think I said, I mean, he had a tough job in this case, you know, <laughs> right, right. The facts are the facts. And so no matter what he did, he couldn't, you know, dispute the facts. Right. Well, and it sounds like he had a lot of things to kind of chase down because he had all the sort of damages stuff that we talked about and, and um, trying to poke holes in that. And then, on the liability side, it sounds like he, there was this subcontractor issue and then the hotel issue and yeah. what their job really was. And I, um, yeah, and I felt like the, the biggest mistake they probably made was in losing credibility overall in the trial was with the defendant because, you know, Tony Jones, the defense lawyer, did a really good job in being very credible and likable throughout the trial. And then he must have just forgotten 
all of the deposition testimony <laughs> of his client <laughs> right. and that because I mean, in his direct, he, they just lied all up and down about the stupidest stuff. I mean, then from no employees to, he made up this story about the defendant made up this story about how he had, they kept the door locked to the pool or they did not keep the door locked to the pool. And how he was comparing his white legs to like a guy from the hotel's white legs and I just, I mean, I, I impeached him on, it was locked the whole time, basically. <laughs> you know? And so, I mean, there was, I mean, it was a very devastating cross just for calling out all of the inconsistencies. And then at the very end, when I said, do you, you know, do you admit at this point any fault? And he said, that would be perjury. After he's just been like wow. live like 10 different times. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Wow. So it sounds like um, at least one of their defenses um, for this contractor was that the the hotel hired us just to hire other people to take care of, to do all this work and take care of all the safety considerations. I mean, was that their main thing? Our only job was to find other people to do these jobs? Yeah, that's pretty much basically what it ended up sounding like. But you had this like massive, I guess, or not massive, but it sounds like there was a pretty detailed contract between the hotel and, and the, the, your defendant, the contractor, in terms of what, what the responsibilities were that the contractor was actually taking on. Right, right. And we, were, we couldn't believe that we were allowed to get into that and like got it into trial and everything because obviously we weren't, you know, a party to the contract. But um you know, Betty kept saying, like, this is the best, this is the best evidence. This is the best evidence. And I think she was right on the, yeah. as far as the hotel went. Yeah. Well, it does, it does go to show what duties they agreed to take on. So, um, yeah. Exactly. Which is, we agree to be responsible for the safety of all persons, vehicles, <laughs> employees, you know, like it was, and it was three or four different lines where they agreed that we highlighted and you know, put up in a PowerPoint you know, closing arguments yes. showing, look, these are all the times they, they agreed to be responsible for safety. Yeah. And, um, you know, and I think that too, um, you know, the morning of the closings, Betty's like, you know, we just need to take a step back and go through the chronology. I guess you guys probably saw in like the beginning of my closing about like, how does, how do general contractors and subcontractors work? Like you hire the general contractor who then figures out all the, you know, right job and then you bring the subcontractors to do that work not like oh yeah your only job is to find a subcontractor to yeah. demo the, you know demo the project which is what they were doing at the time this happened you don't go off and hire a demolition subcontractor you know as the property owner yeah. right yeah yeah, let me. Uh, I didn't. I didn't really cover this in my description. But so the defendant was uh, was the general contractor, Cajun Contractors, who I think was out of Florida, and they had hired the subcontractor of RYR Construction, who was actually doing the uh, the demolition. Um, and uh, you know, I'm I'm sitting here wondering when you're talking about the fact that the contract says that the Cajun Contractors agreed to take on the you know to protect the safety. When you when you uh, put that to their president or to their corporate representative, I mean, what's their explanation? Because it sounded like their defense was that wasn't our job. So what's the? How do they respond to that? That's basically what they said. I mean, even they said, "Yeah, we know. I know that that's what it says in the contract." But that's it was. It became clearer in trial than it was before trial. In trial, their their position was 
yes, it said that in the contract, but the hotel actually would never let us do anything. We prevented us from putting up signs or putting, doing anything else. Um, So even though we did that, said that in the contract, that wasn't really in reality what we were allowed to do. Unfortunately, that was a lie that was contradicted by his um, deposition testimony where he said he could have put up those things. (laughs) Right, right. Wow. Did did anybody, (laughs) did you all have anybody from the hotel come and uh, testify? We, they read, I mean, this was an interesting decision by them. They read the hotel's 30B6 because they wanted to try to establish control of the hotel. Mm. Well, by the time all of our counters were in there and they were reading it in their case in chief, where it was like the hotel was saying it was Cajun, it was Cajun, it was Cajun. Yeah. yeah. Right. Right. And so should we, we should point out for our listeners that you can, uh, we talked a lot about playing video depositions and stuff for witnesses, but you can also um, read them in, which it sounds like you all did. And so you can, um, one side can basically designate the deposition testimony that they want to be read, but then the other side gets the chance to pick the portions of the deposition that should be read as well. So it's the, so it's a complete view of the testimony. So um, once you get to do that, you can really, either kind of muddle things, which I think happens to us a lot. We'll try to designate some deposition testimony and keep it punchy and then it gets counter designated and it's super boring and a nightmare. Um, but <laughs> the flip side is you can create a more complete picture, which it sounds right. like all we're able to do. And Betty and I went back and forth a lot because we didn't settle with the hotel until the fr- Friday before on at 530. So once we knew that, we went back and forth a lot on, well, are we going to call the hotel live? Are we going to read the designations? Do we think that helps us? You know, and Betty, do you remember exactly what, what we ended up, <laughs> why we ended up deciding <laughs> to, use, to use them in our case? Because we, I think we decided that we didn't want to highlight the fact that, you know, the hotel could still be responsible. And we knew that the hotel was going to probably stay on the verdict form. And we ultimately you know, said, well, you know, if we bring the hotel's representative, is that highlighting the fact that you know, they, they have some responsibility and two, will, will it look like, you know, we're now in cahoots with the hotel because now we have, you know, we're calling this hotel, where, where are they in the case? And we didn't want to confuse the jury. So ultimately we decided to send the representative home because I think we had to decide by what, like the Tuesday mm-hmm. of trial because he was in town or something. So yeah. we went back and forth, but I think that was our ultimate decision. Yeah. One of the things too that, you know, I know all of us trial lawyers like think a lot about, you know, before trial and we plan so, you know, meticulously the order of proof um, and, you know, what, what um, order we're going to present our witnesses in and what we think is the most, you know, persuasive way. And like, we had planned for so long how we were going to do it and spent so much time on that. And then like during trial, it all got like just totally thrown out the window oh, because yeah. of scheduling and everything. We couldn't get a video to work. So then we had, you know, to read a deposition and then the witnesses schedules. But it, I think it ended up working out great because, you know, you hear about how you're supposed to mix damages witnesses in with the liability witnesses and I think that all of us kind of think that just doesn't make sense. Like it seems awkward to keep going back and forth, but like at the end of the first day, Betty put on the wife who did a fantastic job. And it was just a very emotional testimony to end the day. The end of the second day, it ended up just being the direct of our client 
um, which was also very emotional. And there had been kids that had been sprinkled in some of the liability aspects. And then, so it ended up being very much interspersed. Yeah. And I think that ended up being so great. Um, we also had played the 30B6 video of the defendant early in our case, and we're going to call him at the end of our case live. And the defense objected to that, saying, well, we're going to call him in our case. So, you know, let, we'll just wait till you cross him in our case. <laughs> and that worked out perfectly for us, too, because then I was able to cross him based on what was being said in the direct versus kind of just, you know, doing what I, what I was going to do, like, affirmatively and much more powerful. So I felt like you can, you know, do the best job you can by all the planning and how, you know, all the hand wringing on the order of witnesses. And then you just kind of have to go with it in trial, but it ended up, I mean, I'll, I mean, I think that was a, such a good lesson learned of really following that like whole damages interspersing with the liability. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and, and you're so right. I mean, because you do sit there and come up with your order of proof and figure out how you're going to do it all. And then, you know, and then you're sitting there at 430 uh, and you don't want to put up your next big witness who's going to go the next morning because you want to start off the day right. And then the judge is saying, well, you better put somebody up or I'm going to make you rest your case. And so you're like, all right, play a video, do something, put something in there. Yeah, Betty, uh, Betty was supposed to put up the wife like on our third day or something. Right, and right. Like, Betty, get, the, get, get the wife. And she's like, oh, okay. <laughs> I'm like, okay. <laughs> well, and we should ask, especially when you're kind of making these decisions more as you go about your strategy and what, how you're going to switch things up. I know our firm, you, you, you all tried this case in DeKalb County. So we make a lot of those decisions um, after court the one day um, at the bars yeah, <laughs> near yeah. the courthouse. Oh, over a few drinks. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Just, get, just get a little creative. Yeah, 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 exactly. We didn't have time for, for bars or drinking, unfortunately. <laughs> no, and it's really... This is, a dry, this is a dry trial. <laughs> oh, really? Wow. Wow. Yeah, yeah. Well, and that does make it sound more fun than it is because it's yeah. really like you're taking a minute, but then like you're going back to your hotel room or your office or your house or whatever and then working for the stuff the next day, so... I made it sound sound kind of fun yeah, and glamorous. It, it, it's not fun. I mean, usually by oh, the time I, I want to be on trials with your firm, then. <laughs> well, only you know, by the, by the time of any trial day for us, we're just like so beat up, and and we just need to have a you know. I don't want to make it sound like we're a bunch of alcoholics, but you know, we need to have a drink, you know. So, uh, um, and it's good, to, you know, get your trial team together and discuss what happened and discuss what you're going to do the next yeah. day. But, uh, yeah. Well, it was interesting because you know I'm used to I did tobacco litigation. And I King and Spalding. And so I'm used to these three week, four week trials yeah. where you have more time because the witnesses are longer and, you know, there's just, it just, you have more time to do things. So, you know, having only that four day period where you're putting on like five, six witnesses a day and, you know, you've got to write your closing before you even start the trial because you don't have very much time. And so, you know, that was a very interesting thing. I mean, Betty and I are texting and calling at, you know, till three o'clock in the morning each night, like, you know, refining our strategies and everything. And she had a three-year-old to go home to. So she had to balance a lot of things. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I mean, you know, that, that is one of the things when you, you know, sometimes when you get the judge who, um, you know, wants to get the case done and wants to, you know, will even make the trial day go longer and, you know, ask the jury, are you guys willing to sit here till seven o'clock at night? And, you know, from why, when you're sitting there and you think you've got your trial strategy planned out, it can be very stressful when the judge is pushing like that. But, uh, 
in every single one of those cases where a judge has done that to me, it always works out better. And, you know, and, and you got to trust yourself that you know that you've worked hard, you prepared and you know this case and, uh, and just, you know, run with it. So it actually, I actually do enjoy it, even though at the time when you're sitting there and the judge is, you know, uh, breathing down your neck, it doesn't feel that way. But, uh, um, you know, it, I do enjoy it when we push the cases uh, hard and even go a little bit longer and, and, uh, and just, you know, put up your next witness, just get everything moving. It's, uh, it, it, it helps get cases, you know, in, in the juries, I think appreciate it too. Right. Well, um, you know, we haven't really talked much about the, the liability case. I mean, I know we've talked about the fact that um, the Cajun contractors was trying to put the responsibility on either RYR, uh, their subcontractor, or on the hotel. But talk a little bit about some of the, um, you know, you had, I think, substantial evidence of, um, you know, just code violations, safety violations, that they weren't following standards. Uh, talk a little bit about that and how you put that into evidence. Well, we tried to get judicial notice of the all these codes and everything and that we weren't successful in that. So we called a safety expert, um, Gary Vernon, who is a former OSHA investigator. Um, and so to go, you know, to kind of walk through all the safety uh, violations and issues. And so he had researched you know, all the OSHA violations and then um, the city of Atlanta building codes and the state of Georgia building codes and, you know, the ones about protecting the public and those things. So we put him up to talk about what the codes were and what the violations were. And, um, you know, we said with the OSHA stuff, in the beginning, like these are for employees, but we're basically presenting these to show what responsible contractors do and are obligated to do under federal law. And they were actually charged on negligence per se in regards to OSHA, um, as well as the city of Atlanta building codes. So that was kind of what we presented. And then the defense got up there and in his affidavit, but not at trial, the expert had talked about these ANSI voluntary standards. Mm -hmm. But I didn't talk about that at trial because I figured if they weren't going to file mandatory stuff, we're not going to talk about voluntary. Right, right. Um, and we were trying to, you know, cut down on time. So then the defense got up and is like, well, OSHA doesn't apply. There's no violations of OSHA here. And you just talked about ANSI, which is voluntary, right? And so he did something I've never seen done before. At the end of it, he's like, your honor, I moved to strike this expert as irrelevant in front of the jury. And Dax, you know, Judge Lopez is like, denied. Right. <laughs> and so then I got up and was like, you know, turned that around and was like, okay, well, did he mention any of the mandatory city of, you know, city of Atlanta building codes that you, you know, that you talked about? No, he didn't. Okay. Well, also, and then, you know, isn't it just lucky for the contractors that it wasn't an employee? Um, you know, otherwise they would have been fine. Right. You know, they would have had a lot of violations. So that kind of became a theme that they were just kind of lucky that it wasn't. Um, and you know, one of the, I think one of the best points for the punitive damages and for the liability that came out during the defendant's cross-examination was, you know, would you be sitting here saying that OSHA did not, does not apply to you and you had no duty to this person if it was a child who had gotten injured or killed right. and without sleeping a beat, he said, yes, that's not, you know, I don't have any duty for that. Mm. Yeah. 
Yeah, and, and so just for our listeners who may not be familiar with OSHA, although it comes up quite a bit on episodes, it's the Occupational Safety and Health um, Administration, but it's, it's for protecting employees or, or um, having regulations and, and safety um, uh, requirements for employers to protect their workers. So I guess their argument was a worker didn't get hurt. And if, if there's not an occupational accident or workplace death, then um, it doesn't really implicate OSHA. But the fact is that they, OSHA has all these guidelines that are really kind of the floor. Um, I mean, yeah. they're not even necessarily best practice. I mean, they're not usually best practices. They're federal right. law that they're right. required to follow. Right. And so if somebody's not doing quite a long list of, um, of, of things I saw in your pretrial order, quite, quite, quite a long list of violations, then it's indicative that it's a very unsafe place. Um, and I mean, the point, I mean, it's a great point that it just so happens somebody who worked there didn't get hurt, but that frequently does happen. Um, but this happened to be way worse because it's a guy 60 feet right. <laughs> downstairs. Yeah. Well, and at the end of the day, a pipe fell from the building. So right. that's just common sense that that shouldn't happen. Yeah. Right. I mean, I mean, and that's what you can always fall back on is just like, look, you know, I don't care what standards apply. I mean, this is common sense. You know, you don't just let stuff fall, you know, down onto the ground where you know there's going to be just people walking around. You know, there's people standing right there and you did absolutely nothing. about Well, it. and it was so it was so effective, Bethany. You did this in your opening, I think, right from the beginning. But um Anybody who lives in Atlanta, I think a lot of cities, but especially Atlanta right now, um, and I just moved back to Atlanta, and so it's kind of um, making an impression on me again, whereas I maybe got used to it before, but there is construction everywhere, and it <laughs> is, there's constantly sidewalks closed, closed, or you're walking under like those um, like scaffolding type yeah. things all the time, and you just sort of assume it's secured enough that if the sidewalk is open or if there aren't signs that you're, it's, it's okay for you to be there. <laughs> right. And Ivana, I was laughing. I was laughing when you started saying that because um, that whole week and there's, there's a building across from the DeKalb County courthouse that's a new build and there are barriers all like they right. basically barriers, like one side of the street up um, so that, you know, the construction site was probably at least half of the street back from the road. Um, and the jurors had to walk from the parking deck by that building every day yeah. during trial. That's awesome. And one of the jurors said that she was walking by the building one day and a bucket fell from like up high. Oh, and she was like, oh. yeah. Wow. So it was awesome. The first day we walked in, I was like, Bethany, look, there's a construction site right across the street. And they have all the safety stuff up. Yeah. And, and it shows you that it's not that hard to do. I mean, it's put up a couple of signs, you block it off. It, it doesn't take that much time, doesn't take that much effort. And yet something they just decided not to do. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And we made that point too about how, little it would cost them to do or time it would cost them to do anything well and, and talk a little bit about your cross-examination of their uh, I guess it was either their corporate representative or their president of their company where you basically just ask them you know are you willing to take you know any responsibility for what happened here and uh, what was his answer to that yeah I mean it was it was 
you know, kind of crazy about how he just got up there. It was, it was like the president. So it was a mom and pop type company. So we were a little bit worried about that. We handled that in Guadir because it was just him and his wife. And that was a big focus of the direct. He was a military veteran and, you know, it was just him and his wife and, um, and everything. And so it was actually, you know, the owner of the company up there, but, um, yeah, I mean, you know, after sitting here, you know, seeing everything that we've seen, you know, listening to all of the evidence from the hotel, the subcontractors, the safety expert, you know, the heartbreaking testimony from the family, sitting here today, are you finally willing to look at this jury and do the right thing and admit some responsibility, you know, at least some responsibility for this? And he just said no. And, um, and then, you know, reiterated that with full, any, any percent of fault, any percent right. of Right. Oh, yeah. it'd be perjury if I if I said mm. any. That I mean, that's just such powerful testimony, and it comes right out of their own mouth. And it, we were actually surprised when we talked to the jurors because we thought they would have been really angry at him. I mean, we obviously, once especially it hit punitives, came out super aggressive against him. Um, but even probably before that, and um, but we were both kind of surprised. They they were like, well, you know, and maybe it was just the people that we talked to too, but. Yeah. They basically said, we just didn't want him to do it again. Right, right. Yeah, I, I should talk a little bit. So the punitive damages verdict was uh, $500,336. And we've talked about where that 336 came from. But uh, talk about how you presented punitives and, and what you uh, gave the jury to think about there. Well, Betty and I had a, had a very <laughs> Big plan about what we were going to do in the punitives case. We had not talked about it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> We did. We did like five minutes before the presentation. So right, right. It worked. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we didn't have any financial information in the case, and we didn't think that any financial evidence would have really helped us. I mean, we kind of had thought about that before trial, like, okay, it was only, you know, the amount of the job, you know, all that kind of thing, that wouldn't have helped us really in trying to get it up. So, you know, Betty's like, let's just ask for, you know, 15 million, you know, three times the amount. Um and I'm like, oh yeah, everybody knows about trouble damages. And she's like, no, no, I was like, yeah. no, they don't. <laughs> <laughs> like, no, Bethany. Um, so, but we, you know, we just um, kind of focused on, and you know, we we didn't present any evidence, and we chose to go second. So the defense lawyer went with about a minute closing. He stood behind his counsel table, didn't even walk up to the jurors. Wow. Um, and so, you know, um, we were like all ready to go. I mean, this was like our, you know, uh, time, you know, time to get everything, do everything you always want to do as a plaintiff's lawyer and be super indignant and, um, you know, talk about justice and fire and brimstone. And, you know. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And our listeners, our listeners can't see, but we could see on the video mm -hmm. cam and Bethany's kind of shaking her fist a little yeah. bit at the sky. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, you know, looking at the two purposes of, you know, punitive damages, which is, you know, punishment and deterrence. And so argued, you know, the punishment should fit the crime, which obviously they said, you know, $5 million was the, you know, significance of the crime. And then deterrence, you know, an amount that is going to make sure that this never happens again. And so, um, you know, Betty's like, I think you can just describe it as you can use this compensatory damages as your base. And so then we, you know, just said, you can, you, you know, you can use that as your starting point. And in order to both accomplish the punishment and the deterrent aspects of it, 15 million is an appropriate amount. So he, they, and they, the defense said, basically, I was very surprised because I've, 
then in a number of punitive phase twos, at, uh, you know, in representing tobacco companies, right. um, where, you know, you know, number one rule is defense lawyers be very, you know, we respect your verdict, we hear your verdict, yeah. you know. And he was like, basically, you're wrong. Oh, wow. Yeah, he said we, this, there was no willful one, but, mm. you know, conduct. And then asked for 50. So, um, you know, we felt like, we sh- you know, we shot for the, for the stars with the uh, right, right. Uh, 15 million and um, but still thought it was, you know, a very strong oh. message coming out with another $500,000. No, there's, for no, sure. there's and no, it's no a doubt. Accomplishment yeah. just to get, just to get that far, to get the jury to say, to be with you enough to want to award punitive damages does not always happen, obviously. Mm-hmm. And so that's also already an accomplishment yeah. in itself. Well, I also uh, think that they, they thought that they already awarded punitive damages yeah. to the compensatory, you know, so. Yeah, that's one thing you always struggle with, uh, you know, is, 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 you know, the jury, especially when they get, you know, when, if they're upset or if they're, you know, angry about what happened, how they feel like they've already put in their compensatory. Um, you know, there are some states where you don't even get to tell the jury that they're going to move to a phase two, you know, until you hear about the verdict. And I can tell you, I've tried one of those cases in one of those states and the jury's never happy to hear that their job is not done um, when it's when when they think that they're done mm-hmm. um, yeah so, but I, the, I think the question though was after the damages so right. I, I don't know I don't, they didn't know exactly what was going to happen with the answer to that question but I don't think they like went back and like yeah or anything but I think that they did you know I mean they didn't seem they didn't tell us or seem surprised that they had to come back for an additional amount right right yeah um, well, and then I should, I, I should ask you, that, so the compensatory verdict was $5 million. And again, uh, you didn't put any medical expenses in. And so basically, you're talking about pain and suffering. How did you, um, how did you present to the jury, uh, you know, to uh, have them, you know, award your client $5 million? Well, so we tested it, you know, in our focus group with the $10 million figure, because that's what we, we wanted to get an idea of how the jury felt like, you know, it went up to 10 million. Um, and so they awarded in our focus group three, but we found out in our focus group that if we don't give them like, so if only the defense gives like a lower amount and we give a higher amount, they don't know where to start. Um, you know, so they were trying, in our focus group, at least they were trying to figure out well, what's a starting point. And so they came up with it on them, their, you know, on their own as 1.5 and they kind of started from there. And so what we figured out was, well, let's us, you know, if they're willing to reject the defense's numbers, let's us give them the starting point that they, you know, and the range. So basically if you believe everything that the defense has said, that this is a minor injury, it's just headaches that'll go on for the rest of his life you know, it's not a $500,000, you know, injury, like the defense said, it's a $2 million injury. Right. But if you believe us and kind of just lay, you know, we didn't like kind of laid out everything about the serious life altering aspects. It's 10 million. And so then I, you know, we, I gave the job at, you know, ad, right. If he had gone on and seen this ad. Um, and then I did the fair market value of a healthy brain by comparing it to Freddie Freeman's salary, the Braves player, right? And Chris Tucker, who's a DeKalb County native actor, and kind of use those to say, like, these, this is what people in this area, in this community, are doing with healthy human brains, and this is just per year or per movie. So, you know, for Mr. Laguerre's entire life, I mean, certainly his healthy brain is worth ten million for the rest of his life. 
Um, and we, I mean, the jurors said about half of them were at the 10 million mark, about half of them were about two to 4 million. Right. Um, but then the four person said, you know, if you'd started your range, maybe like four to 15, you might've gotten them to be higher. So right. we all that fear, like, are we asking for too much? Yeah, yeah I know. Yeah. It, it's always, it's always hard to figure out, you know, what, what is the right amount to ask for? I, I did think that, you know, when you talk about the, the fair value of the brain and you talked about Mr. Laguerre, um, he, he had immigrated from Haiti. He had graduated college. He spoke four different languages. I mean, so, um, you know, he sounded like a, a, a very uh, intelligent, um, you know, person who, uh, you know, have enjoyed driving a cab for a living. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And Betty did a really good job with bringing all that out and the damages witnesses about how, you know, he was very smart and, and, and intellectual. And, you know, it was a little bit hard, I think, for the jury sometimes to see just because of the accent. Yeah. Um, but, you know, we, I think that we were successful in bringing out that he was a, you know, um, an intelligent person who used his brain. Yeah, that's so great. And, you know, and it's as we say all the time, I mean, if you have great clients, which it sounds like you did, I mean, it, um, it certainly helps at trial and, and helps with the jury. And yeah. if you have, if you have really bad clients on the other side, which it sounds like they did, that, that also helps. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. Right. I mean, we had a lot of, you know, a lot of luck with the facts of the case it really helped us. Well, as, as my wife likes to say, luck favors the prepared. So, uh, you know, <laughs> We know you all did uh, some great work on this case and, and uh, put a lot of time and effort into it and came out with uh, a really, a really great verdict. And, and I, I just, um, you know, I, th I think that this case is just, uh, you know, for any young lawyer uh, looking into, you know, taking on cases. I mean, this is a good roadmap on, um, you know, how to prepare a brain injury case, because uh, because as we've said, uh, brain injury cases can be tough and they can they it can be tough to show the damages and how they really affect um you know the client and um and you know the way you guys put this together um it's just really excellent work so uh, congratulations to you and your clients yeah well uh we've taken up quite a bit of time um uh bethany and betty have is there anything else about this case that uh, that we haven't talked about that you want to make sure our listeners have, have heard We'll take that as a no. Yeah, I think <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm just thinking over, like, you know, we talked about different lessons learned and everything. You know, I've been yeah. talking to people about it, but I think we've covered all the lessons, you know, learned um, from it. And, you know, take risks. I mean, yeah. especially when there's yeah. liability like this, you know, even if there's some questions on the damages, these are the cases that are, you know, worth that risk because yeah. we knew we weren't going to come out with zero. Right. Um, right. And yeah. so it was just a matter of, you know, how much we could build, build up the, the damages. And, you know, I think we were, we were able to do that. But I mean, I think that the biggest thing for a young lawyer, especially is you've got those good, good liability shocker cases. Mm -hmm. you know, they're worth the risk, even if you don't know exactly the extent of the damages at the time. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we again, didn't really talk about apportionment per se, oh, but that was one of the biggest, that was like the scariest words in the case, I think, apportionment, you know, yeah, we yeah, spent a lot right. of time with that. That's a good point. I mean, I, I did see that you had the other defendants on the verdict form and they put 100% towards uh, Cajun contractors. So, I mean, yeah, talk about that, um, about how you all, you know, faced apportionment. And for our listeners who, you know, aren't in Georgia or, or don't know what apportionment is, essentially, um, you know, if there's another party who can arguably 
be at fault. Um, as long as the correct procedures are followed, they can uh, be put on the verdict form for the jury to uh, say that they're uh, responsible for a certain portion of um, uh, of the damages. And um, and so that's how that's that's what the law in Georgia is. So uh, so talk about how you all uh, address that and were able to I mean get the jury to give a hundred percent to Cajun contractors. Well, for, you know, oh, go ahead. You go. Well, you know, we had the, we had the subcontractors in the hotel. So for the subcontractors, we were probably, well, I guess we were kind of equally worried about both, but the subcontractors, we knew if we could convince the jury that they were actually under Georgia law for liability purposes, considered employees, then we could get any of their fault on the sub the contractor and i'll let betty kind of talk about that you know a little bit as far as the hotel you know we use the premises liability law of an owner and occupier um that they're responsible for you know their area to show that you know that they took on that the contractors took on the responsibility that was equal to that of the hotel um, and so combine that with the contract and them taking on all of these things, I think they felt like, you know, well, you know, the, they're not, the hotel's not here. And so, you know, they're saying that they have equal duty. And so, you know, then they're, you know, they're the ones that are, you know, basically being blamed here. And so they have to take on the entire responsibility. Yeah, I think it was really strong, that contract, again, I mean, I, I keep saying that over and over, but the contract literally, I mean, it said we are responsible for safety of everybody on the property, and we will be responsible for the negligence of our subcontractors. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, that was in black and white in writing, um, and we we actually tried to move to strike the contractor's apportionment. Uh, because they have apportioned to the wrong entity, and we ended up losing on that because the hotel had apportioned to the correct entity. Uh, but I think it ultimately played out better for our case to have that as an issue and have them on a verdict form and have a clear determination that Cajun was at fault. Yeah. Um, but we also, you know, we focus grouped the case. We actually did it twice. We did two focus groups. One wasn't really a formal one where we did presentations, but we kind of went through the facts. And then the second time we did, you know, a four hour thing where we presented all three sides. And um, so we were, we were prepared in advance for some of the issues that we thought were going to be, you know, a, a problem. And this, the subcontractor employee employer, you know, issue was actually probably now looking back was probably one of the biggest liability issues. And the most time was spent trying to say that this was an entirely different construction company. Right. So, you know, but I mean, like Yvonne said, you know, it's like, okay, are you really going to believe then that their only job was to hire these people who weren't responsible, you know, or who were responsible for everything. And so we, you know, presented a lot, the testimony of the subcontractors and everything that basically the general contractor controlled everything about their work. They actually, the defense ended up bringing them live to try to contradict that um, by saying things oh. that really make sense to like, you know, lay people like, oh, well, he didn't pay us individually. He didn't like provide us like health plans. Like we're separate companies. Um, but then we tried in closing to say, look, like we're not here to prove like under the state of Georgia, you know, like 
like who's responsible for like paying taxes for these people or things like that. Like this is just focused on whether or not they're liable in this case for their actions. It's a completely, that's a red herring of like all the things that they were trying to say as far as if they called the person boss or not, that's right. not really what the law looks at. Um, so, but that was one of the issues we were a little concerned about. Yeah. Yeah. And the jury charges are pretty good on that as far as the uh, method manner and control and things like that. So, yeah. um, you know, I know, I know y'all did a great job of putting that together. And I was thinking about Betty, as you were talking about the, the contract, you know, if you, if you would, uh, think about this case that if this hadn't happened to Mr. Laguerre and the con and they had finished their work and then all of a sudden the hotel had decided, Hey, we're not going to pay you because you guys weren't really doing anything. You bet your ass, they would have been in there saying, look at all this stuff we contracted to do and you need to pay us for it. So, uh, so yeah, they were, mm -hmm. um, they couldn't run from that contract. I mean, that's, uh, that's, that's very strong evidence. It's the best evidence, Betty. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And we actually got, which I think is helpful, you know, a lot of lawyers ask like about whether or not you should do like the general verdict form, which you just like basically have one question, you know, who do you find for and in what amount versus having a special, you know, interrogatory question on certain, you know, aspects. And so we pushed hard for that vicarious liability question because we thought it was very confusing to the jury to have just been instructed on you know this whole vicarious liability ask you know issue and then just ha expect that they're going to know what to do on the verdict form as far as apportionment right and you know i think that the court of appeals has said basically they favor you know special you know interrogatory questions so that they can it's it's easy, more easily basically known and undone if it's something's wrong um and so we ended up getting that question on the verdict form and i thought that that was very helpful for the jurors back there in knowing what to do because it specifically said, you know, if you find yes for this question, then do not assign any, assign any fault of RYR to Cajun. Right. Yeah. Well, guys, this has been a, a, a great discussion and, uh, uh, again, great trial by you. And, uh, um, and let me just tell our listeners again, the name of this case is Laguerre versus Cajun Contractors, Inc. It was tried in DeKalb County, Georgia. Uh, in June of 2019, uh, uh, just a couple of weeks ago. Uh, and we've been talking to, and sorry, and the verdict was $5,536,000. Uh, uh, um, and we have been talking to Bethany Schneider from Schneider Law PC. And you can look up Bethany at SchneiderLawPC.com. And we've been talking to Betty Davis from the Davis Injury Firm. And you can look her up at BettyDavisLaw.com. And she also has a blog at the Atlanta Personal Injury Attorney Blog.com. Uh, guys, this has been a great discussion. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, have you reached a verdict? Thank you for listening to the Great Trials Podcast. You can visit us online at greattrialspodcast.com. We realize in the show that sometimes we use terminology that not everybody would be familiar with 
or that uh, we haven't uh, always explained every part of the jury trial process. So we've done two special shows, one on legal terminology, and Yvonne, that's going to be hopefully not that boring. Uh, we, we, we've uh, included a number of people in that so that uh, we can make that more entertaining, and a show on the jury trial process. And we've also put uh, links to uh, those episodes on our greattrialspodcast.com, as well as a uh, glossary of the legal terminology on the uh, website. Yeah, so check those out. If you have a trial you would like to be featured on the Great Trials Podcast, or if you're a trial lawyer and you want to be on the show, or if you're just a person who has something that you want to say to us, please email us at info at greattrialspodcast.com. Note if you have something mean to say, we don't have email. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> we only need a positive commentary. Yeah, we're fragile. Yeah. Um, you can also rate or review us uh, wherever you get your podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever. Again, if you have something mean to say, um, our podcast is not available for review. We, we also want to thank uh, the people behind the scenes. Uh, one is Taras Misher, who is our uh, uh, podcast extraordinaire. Uh, he is from Podcast on the Go. And Allison Hirsch uh, from Capricorn Communications. She is a magician when it comes to putting these shows together and getting them scheduled. And this has been the Great Trials Podcast, and we appreciate your time and hope you'll listen again. Thank you for listening.